Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, it's a historical narrative, and it's about the life and rule of King David. This is really, if you want to pick a book that is the high point of Israel's history, it's 2 Samuel. It starts out with the death of Saul and David being placed into his proper place as king. And it ends with David just about to die. And uh, unfortunately, at the end of his life, David had committed his second major sin. His second major sin was that he took a census of the people uh, against God's will. And uh, that created all kinds of problems. We don't talk about the second greatest sin much, but we talk about the first greatest sin uh, quite a bit. We've studied that before. It's where he sinned with Bathsheba. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, not the actual sin, but the aftermath of it. Because in the aftermath of that sin and what happens uh, in the wake of that and how the Lord confronts David and what he does to reconcile him back to himself, we get to learn a lot about how we speak truth in our personal relationships and what we can do uh, to both give and receive truth with each other and how we can honor the Lord with each other in the right way. So often... Uh, we can really do some damage, can't we? In a relationship, in a friendship, in a marriage, in a church, we can do damage if we respond and misuse truth by having a selfish motive. And even something as pure as truth can become a weapon. It becomes a weapon if we intentionally use it to harm somebody else or if we use it in a way that causes division within the body of believers. So it's absolutely essential that we are humble and that we're holy and that we're careful with how we communicate with each other and that we fulfill the Lord's instruction, which we're going to look at in just a minute from Ephesians 4, that we communicate with the Lord's instruction on how we are to speak truth to each other. But let's start by reading this historical account of David and Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. And just to give you enough context so when we start reading in verse 1, you know exactly where we are. David has seen Bathsheba as he's walking on the roof of his palace. He's seen Bathsheba, this woman. She's in her house taking a bath, and he brings her to the palace. He commits sin with her, and then he takes care of the little problem that she has a husband by sending him to the front lines of war and making sure he gets killed. His plan works. Uriah dies in battle, and after a little time of mourning, David takes Bathsheba as his wife, And he brings her into the palace, and they get pregnant and have a son. The last line of chapter 11, which you can look at, gives us the prelude to the text. Because it says at the end of chapter 11, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, which he brought, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. A traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5. 
Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have stuck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Thou, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. You thought you got away with it. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die, even though David said in verse 5 that the man deserved to die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Now turn over for a second to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll come back to the text in 2 Chronicles and just, excuse me, 2 Kings just a second. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. And let's read in verse 14. As a result, speaking about how God has worked and given us gifts and blessed us, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The title of this message is called The Delicate Balance because what we see Nathan doing in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and what we see Paul describing here in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 is one of the most challenging actions that we can take as a believer. And that is to speak the truth in love. Now there are two primary reasons why that's important and why it's difficult. One is, is that as believers and disciples of Jesus Christ, who is described in John chapter 1 as the truth, Christ is the truth, so as his disciples, as believers in him, it's essential that we stand for and defend and speak truth at all times. Because it is honoring to him, it is the right thing to do, and it's what he's called us to do to show our love for him. So it is vitally important that we speak the truth in love because Christ is truth and we're his disciples. The other reason why it's so essential is that people around us need to see the integrity of our character and our beliefs. We need to prove 
what we do. We need to prove that we trust in Christ. We need to prove that we're disciples of Christ by living out how we handle the truth. And if we misuse it or we corrupt it or we in some way mismanage the truth or don't speak it in a loving way, but speak it harshly and rudely and and critically, then we're not honoring who we are. You and I as believers are called to be protectors and messengers of truth. And it's important because the truth is increasingly being assaulted and undermined in our culture. Truth's always been subject to man's interpretation. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But it's honestly disturbing that there's almost now in our culture an an absence of truth. There's no shame. There's very little sense of what is true and holy. Even last night we took a little family bike ride. We went to a park and we were just letting Matthew play on the playground for a couple minutes. And Julie walked over to the side and she heard some teenagers speaking stuff you wouldn't hear in the worst R-rated movie that you could see. Teenagers. No truth, no speaking of truth, no values, no standards. Now, that's not true of the whole culture, but we know, right, that it's becoming increasingly true of our culture. So it is so essential that we speak truth because without truth, there is no righteousness because truth defines righteousness. So the goal of the enemy, and it's been very effective how he's carried this out, is to minimize truth and make it seem subjective. And as that starts to take hold, then we've seen this before. He emphasizes selfish desire. He de-emphasizes personal responsibility. And he shifts any guilt and blame to somebody else. And that strategy has infiltrated our nation and our world. It's infiltrated our families. And it's even infiltrated the church to some degree. So if there's any hope of us seeing people come to Christ and there being revival and people starting to love the Lord, then they're going to have to see truth exemplified and spoken by us. Because if we don't speak truth and we don't live out truth, the gospel will not have an effect because culture is not going to embrace truth. Now that means, this is the end of the introduction, we're going to go back to the text, that as we speak the truth in love, it is absolutely imperative for the sake of of our relationships, for the sake of the health of the body, and for the sake of our world, it is imperative that we are guided by the right attitude in our hearts and that we're sanctified in how we speak. Go back to the text for a second in Samuel chapter 12 because we have a really excellent example of this in what Nathan does. And I want you to notice one very important detail at the outset of this text. I almost missed it as I was studying, and the Lord said, hey, pay attention. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, don't miss that, because that line establishes everything else that happens. The Lord sent Nathan to David. That's an important detail that the Holy Spirit gives us, because what he is saying to us is that Nathan is not going out of anger. He's not going out of disgust at what David's done. He doesn't have a a personal agenda. He's not hostile in his own spirit and frustrated with his friend, and I'm going to go take care of this. He doesn't have any kind of uh, uh, angle to leverage the situation. Well, I'm going to blackmail him with this, and 
If I expose this, he'll be embarrassed, so I'm going to use this to gain a greater position. There's none of that there. He went to David because the Lord sent him. And that is so key. Sometimes the Lord gives you and I an assignment to do something that is relationally difficult, and we don't want to do it. Imagine how hard this assignment was for Nathan. He's got to go not only to his friend, but he's got to go to the guy who's king and who is the spiritual leader and who has been the spiritual example to everybody. Who is he to challenge David? Who is he to go to David and say, hey, David, you did the wrong thing. The king's power was unquestioned and David had the special anointing of the Lord as the man who who loved the Lord. So who was he? And yet, he has to go because David had failed morally and in a huge way. Not just sexual immorality, that would have been enough. But he also has, has deceived and he's abused his power and he's set up a hit. He tells Joab, put Uriah, the Hittite, put him out on the front line. I'm sure Joab's going, why this guy? What, what did he do? He's got a wife. I mean, why would you put him on the front line? David says, I don't, don't question me. Put him out on the front line. He needs to see the heart of the battle, knowing that as he goes out to the front line of the war, that he's going to get killed. And that's exactly what David wants, because he has a plan. He has a scheme. He wants to get rid of Bathsheba's husband so she can be his wife. So this has not just been sexual immorality, as if that wouldn't be enough. This is a whole plot that he carries out over time This is premeditated, what he's going to do to make sure her husband is killed so he can have her. And he deceives and lies and hides it secret from everybody in the process. Now somebody has to confront him. And the Lord says to Nathan, it's going to be you. But with anything that we would describe as the Lord's leading, because when you look back at chapter 12, verse 1, it says the Lord sent Nathan. So we would say that Nathan had been led. But with anything that we know as the Lord's leading, we have to make abundantly sure that it really is from the Lord. We're not told how he communicated to Nathan, but the Lord had to tell him in a very certain way. We don't see an angel or a dream or anything like that. And that's a good example for us because we don't necessarily hear from the Lord the way they did in the Bible. That's not to say we can't, but it's not as common. So how do we understand when the Lord is leading? How do we get the Lord's direction, and make sure it's clear. Well, it's often something that we would rather not do, and it takes one of three forms. We either have to defend the name of the Lord or protect the relation, uh, excuse me, the reputation and character of another believer, or we have to advance the cause of the Lord. Many times the Lord wants us to speak truth and love to another person so that we will defend God or we'll protect the person or we will make sure that the ministry gets advanced. And if it's one of those purposes, not personal satisfaction or not some kind of uh, agenda that we have to gain an upper hand, then we need to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, is this from you? Lord, are you sending me? Lord, is this what you want me to do? And sometimes that's in a moment. That's not stretched out over weeks. That's as you're talking to somebody and you feel impressed by the Lord. You need to say that to that person. We have to quickly say, Lord, if that's from you, confirm that somehow. Show me somehow because I don't want to speak something that's not from you. I'm going to get in all kinds of relational problem if I say something thinking it's from you, but it's not. 
And we need to be very careful because the potential for damage is so great. And it's not always a joy to do this. But thankfully, it will rarely be on this scale. There are specific ways the Lord calls us to speak truth and love. And one of the biggest ones that we have is evangelistically. I want you to, if you're taking notes or you're bored and need something to do right now, I want you to write down seven references, okay, as we go through. I'm going to give you some verses. But I want to tell you, uh, or, or let's talk about, the ways that God calls us to speak the love, uh, truth in love evangelistically. Okay, because this is one of the primary assignments that we have. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize and making disciples. So we have, you and I, a commission from Jesus himself that we have a job to share the gospel. So how do we speak the truth in love evangelistically? Well, we are unequivocally called to tell people that they are sinners. And the way we tell people they are sinners is by telling them that we're sinners too. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Just write down Romans 3.23. We're going to make a list. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You need to know those two verses. You need to have those verses memorized to be able to say to people, you are a sinner, and I am a sinner too. What we're so reticent about in the 21st century is to tell people that they've committed sin. Now, after we do that, we're also to tell them, and this is where it starts to get difficult, that we have grieved the Lord by that sin, and we have willfully separated ourselves from Him. But then the good news starts, 2 Peter 3.9, which we can tell people that He loves us more than we can imagine, and that he does not desire that anyone should die eternally, but that all should come to repentance. So we're sinners, we're sentenced to death, but God doesn't want that to happen. He didn't desire for us ever to be in that position, so he's going to do something to help us out. Romans 5.8, he demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Who is the ungodly? Anybody who's ever lived. Every single person who's walked the face of this earth or will walk the face of the earth, is ungodly. We're full of sin. We're sentenced to death. But God has delivered us and offered salvation. Then we take them to Romans 10.9. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Somebody say amen. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John 1.12, as many as believed him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's seven verses. If you know those seven verses and can give those seven verses to somebody, you can lead anybody to Christ. Just seven verses. We already know half of them from helping with Awana, right? We should know those seven. So when we're talking to somebody and they're critical or unhappy or they're desperate or they're discouraged or they feel hopeless, we can say, let me tell you about the good news of the gospel. Let me just give you seven verses. And you start to talk through it. I just did it in one minute. You just start to talk through it and say, we're all full of sin. I'm full of sin. I'm such a sinner. And sin sentences us to death. But God doesn't want us to stay that way. He sent Christ to rescue us 
and deliver us. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our hearts, we will be saved. And when we confess our sins, he'll be faithful to forgive us and declare us his son. This is the good news you need to know. We're called to speak the truth in love evangelistically. We're also called to speak it interpersonally. Both with other believers and with those who are close to us. Your spouse, your kids, your family, your friends, other believers. Ephesians 4 says that we do this to help the growth of the body. We do this to build up the body in love. But how do we make sure we do it the right way? Because it seems... Far too easy, doesn't it, to cause problems when we're honest. Sometimes we speak truth and we hope it'll be received and it blows up in our face and there's a rift and somebody doesn't want to talk to us and doesn't forgive us and then we've created problems and they start to talk to other people where they were too blunt with me and it was harsh and they should have never been that mean and what, what, and, and it becomes just a huge mess. Maybe that's happened in your family. Maybe you're dreading Thanksgiving because the last Thanksgiving you said something to the family and boy, mashed potatoes started to be thrown. I mean, it was, it was bad. How do we speak the truth in love and follow what Scripture says without blowing everything up? Well, that's where this account of Nathan and David becomes very helpful. And I want to give you six things this morning and I will only spend a couple minutes on each. But I want to give you six principles for speaking the truth in love. Because by studying these, this will help us in our relationships. Nathan does six things here that are beautiful. As he's led by the Lord, as he goes to David, as he tells this parable, he, he does something that is so relationally pure and such an example of speaking the truth in love that we need to look at it and say, when God calls me to do that, when God calls me to act, I need to follow these guidelines. And when I'm in struggle and somebody comes to me, I need to receive it based on the fact that they're doing it this way. So let's look at the first guideline that God gives us. It's in verse 1. The first guideline for speaking the truth in love is that Nathan didn't dance around the problem. Nathan did not dance around the problem. He had a personal responsibility from the Lord to go to David, and he did. I was taking a study break last night. We made a little dinner, and I, I sat down. My kids were watching a movie, and I just sat down for a couple minutes. And, and the character that was on the movie said something, and it took me a couple minutes to say, hey, wait a second, that applies to what we're studying tomorrow morning. But the character said, sometimes it's better to tell a small lie than to deliver a painful truth. And the Lord said, hey, pay attention to that. That applies. Sometimes it's better to tell a small lie and get yourself out of a situation than to tell a painful truth. Now, the fact is, it's much easier for us to do that, but it's not better. The truth is always better. We need to be willing to be open with the truth, not just in those times like Nathan where we have to confront somebody in love because they're doing something wrong. But it also applies to what I'm calling reactionary honesty. Now, what is reactionary honesty? Reactionary honesty is being upfront and honest with somebody when they ask us a question. When somebody says, 
how are you doing or what's going on or what do you think? We're very good at disguising truth, which isn't necessarily dishonesty, but it's not letting people know our emotions and our thoughts. So it's kind of subtly deceptive. Reactionary honesty. The Greeks had a word for not being honest in our reactions. It's the word hypocrito. It means wearing a face. You ever seen the image in, in plays or in the theater of the two masks, comedy and tragedy? Well, those symbolize the concept of hypocrito. It was playing a part by using a mask to hide who you really are. Needless to say, it's where we get the word hypocrite. So when somebody says to us something that's asking a question, and we kind of pull out the little mask and say, oh, I'm doing good. But we're really not being honest with them. We're, we're kind of disguising what's real because we don't want to let them in. That's hypocrito. That's, that's putting on a mask. They say, well, Paul, I'm, I'm honest with people. I'm, I'm a person of integrity. Well, that's fine. I believe that. But let me give you a few examples of how we're not honest with each other. In marriage, when your spouse has frustrated you and they say, are you okay? Because your body language is just screaming, I'm not okay. Now, I know this doesn't apply to anybody but me, but go with me on this, okay? You're frustrated, you're ticked off, you're angry, you're kind of sulking, you're kind of sitting there, you're not saying anything. And, and they, are you, what's going on? Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just tired. Got a lot on my mind. Want to watch my show? Inside, we're seething and we're burning and we're waiting for a chance to get even or to say words that will hurt because we've been hurt when we really just need to forgive whatever happened and let it go. But instead, we hold on to that root of bitterness and anger. That's, that's putting on the mask. That's relational, reactionary dishonesty. Or in friendships, we're good at hiding what we believe and what we feel, but we hate it when other people do it to us, right? We get aggravated and anxious when we know someone isn't being honest with us. And we keep saying, what's going on? Oh, it's fine. Everything's good. You, you know, nothing, nothing's going on. And we know they're not telling the truth. That just drives us crazy to no end. And we start to lose trust. And we feel patronized and deceived. Because the side effect of dishonesty is that it never breeds trust or unity. So when we know somebody's not being straight with us, and we're not being straight with them, it starts to erode the fabric of the relationship, and there develops a breach that we try to cover up. Or in the church, we, we say everything's fine, and then we talk about the situation to another person. Or we go and complain to somebody, or we... In, in our worst extreme, disguise it as a prayer request. You ever done that one? Uh, you need to pray for so-and-so because they're just, that, that's gossip. That's not real. But we walk around and we act like everything's fine. But we get somebody involved who shouldn't be involved and then they take our side and, and then relational sabotage starts to happen and there are little pockets of people that are talking about it. And, and if we're not honest about this, it becomes very dangerous. Listen, if this isn't a place that is full of love and truth, then we have no integrity as believers and no integrity as a church. And our witness loses its foundation. So we have to be so careful that we protect 
honesty. Because people need to see us speaking truth with each other in love. Nathan didn't answer on the problem. Number two, this one's shorter. Verses five to six. Nathan gave David the opportunity to self-confront and self-confess. Nathan gave David the opportunity to self-confront and self-confess. We see in verses 1 to 4 that he tells this illustration. And he gives David the opening to recognize himself in the story. He tells the story in such a way that David should be able to see, Hey, I've got all this stuff. Uriah had nothing. I stole the one thing from him that he didn't want to give up and shouldn't have had to give up. And I abused my power in doing that. How dare I have done that? He gives David the opportunity to recognize himself and come clean. But notice instead, verse 5, that David gets ticked off because he's clueless. When we are walking in righteousness, we will be spiritually sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Even if it involves our failure and even if it requires us having to change. When we are walking with the Lord and we are living righteously, when the Holy Spirit speaks, we will hear. The opposite is also true. When we are not walking in righteousness, we lose that spiritual sensitivity because sin dulls it. David had to be under conviction before Nathan was even sent. He had to know what he was doing is wrong. As he continues to execute the plan and tell Joab, send Uriah out. As he continues to think about Bathsheba and lust after her, he had to know that that was not right. But he was blinded by his sin and by his pride. And he's unwilling to confront himself about this awful thing that he has done to to dishonor the Lord. Once we're convicted, whether it's by the Holy Spirit or by the words of a faithful friend, the only correct response is to confess it and ask the Lord for forgiveness. If someone has the leading of the Lord to speak the truth in love to us, then we need to receive the truth with humility. But if we stand with our back up and say, well, that's not right. I'm not going to accept that. You have no right to tell me that. Then we become full of our pride. We need the Holy Spirit to break us of our pride And then we come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your mercy and I need your help. I've sinned against you, which is exactly what David does in verse 9. So by telling him the story, he gives David the opportunity to self-confront and self-confess. David doesn't get that. So third, verses 3 and 4, Nathan gently shows the injustice and disparity of what David had done. He gently shows the injustice and disparity of what David had done. Notice that he is careful not to intentionally embarrass David. He doesn't call him out in the palace. He doesn't wait till there's a public ceremony when he can say, hey, David, who do you think you are? You committed adultery with Bathsheba and sent her husband to the front line. What are you going to answer to that? This is not 2012 politics. Instead, and instead of becoming critical and judgmental, instead, he tries to get David by this story, verses 3 and 4, to understand that he's done the wrong thing. If someone becomes aware of their failure without us having to call them out, the ownership of it will be much greater. And by the way, there's a, there's a side spiritual principle here for us that's very important. 
We must be self-aware. Self-awareness is a mark of spiritual, emotional, and relational maturity. Because it starts with a willingness to say, I am not perfect, I have many flaws, and I will do things many times to let people down and compromise my standards. Now you say, well, that's obvious. Paul, all of us know we're not perfect. Yet sometimes we act like we are. Sometimes we're above reproach. We don't want anybody to tell us anything. The greatest extent of self-awareness, the way that we will become more and more self-aware and understand our flaws so that people don't have to tell us is to do what David does in Psalm 139, 23, where he says, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. It should be a daily prayer. Lord, make me self-aware of my flaws so I'll be humble before you and before others. Because if we're not self-aware, we just keep going on and doing things and people are frustrated with us and nothing happens. And at some point, somebody that loves us is going to have to come to us and speak truth. So we'll be aware of something we don't see in ourselves. Because while nobody likes to have their faults spoken to them, while nobody likes to be told, hey, you didn't do the right thing, it's so important that we be humble and receptive when somebody does that. Proverbs chapter 27 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt me. If somebody speaks truth and love to us, it may hurt. But we have to filter that by considering the source of the wound. It's from a faithful friend. It's like a doctor that does surgery to cut out whatever is is harming us. It's going to hurt, but the end, end effect is going to be wonderful. David, excuse me, Nathan does that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In the past, David's been self-aware. We see this in the Psalms. He feels emotional. He feels despondency. He feels uh, abandoned and hurt and scared. He's very open with the Lord about that. He's not uh, embarrassed to say what he really feels. But in this case, he is not doing that. And Nathan knows as his friend, this is not like you, David. Usually you're very self-aware. Usually you're aware when you've sinned against the Lord. And you go right to him and confess it. Now you've committed this major, grievous sin. And you're walking around like nothing's wrong. So I've got to come and I've got to tell you about it. And there's a ramification from it. You're not going to get to build the temple. That's going to be a huge disappointment to you. But I've got to tell you this. Look back at verse 7 for a second. How much did it burn when there's that pause between David's hostile response. Oh, that guy's got to die. How dare he do such a thing? And I don't think that it's Nathan going, you're him. I think there's a pause. And Nathan says, you're the one that's done this. It's you. What I just described is you. Doesn't push David away from the Lord, it draws him back to David to the Lord. Look at number four quickly. Verse seven. Nathan didn't leverage the irony of David's reaction to rub it in. Nathan didn't leverage the irony of David's reaction to rub it in. When David gets angry and he says that this man deserves to die, not realizing that it's him. Nathan doesn't use the obvious irony of the moment to become critical and sarcastic. 
And that's a very real temptation, isn't it? To add our two cents. To give a couple words that just bite a little bit. That just dig in a little bit. That we recognize, hey, you're a failure and I'm superior to you. And I had to come to you and it's been very difficult. Well, you know what? You did mess up. He could have said, David, yeah, you did. How dare you do such a thing? I can't believe you've let down our nation. But we don't see that at all. One of the things that damages our reputation and causes division, especially within the body, is that we don't show restraint in this area. We think we have a right to say whatever we want. There's a reason why it says speaking the truth in love. That mitigates against the personal agenda. It mitigates against the extra little dig. Because motive has a lot of power. So the Lord says, be careful why you say it. Be careful how you say it. And make sure you do it to build each other up. Number five, verses seven to eight. Nathan reminded David of the Lord's calling. The Lord had anointed David as king. And he had delivered him. Look at this. This is in verses seven and eight. He had delivered him from Saul's attacks. And he had blessed him and his family And he had given him authority over Israel and Judah. A little foreshadowing there of the divide that will come under Rehoboam, his grandson. God says, I gave you everything you needed. I supplied all that you would want and more. And if you had needed more, I would have given it to you. See, there's another important spiritual principle that we need to grab here. And it's the key to the whole process. We have to remember that the Lord has delivered us from sin and given each of us a holy calling. Remembering that, seeing that perspective draws us toward repentance. And it also reminds us that God's an incredibly gracious God and he holds us accountable for our sin, but he also offers deliverance from sin. And when he delivers us, he calls us to a great calling that is collective and individual. The calling collectively is to be one body that loves him and serves him and declares his name and speaks the gospel. The individual calling is specific to you and me. He gives us and equips us to fulfill the assignments he has to minister in certain places to certain people, to influence people spiritually, to help them mature in their faith, to be a light in this dark culture that we live in. Nathan says to David, David, come on now. You have a calling. Oh, and what an incredible, magnificent calling it is. You will impact more people than probably the rest of us combined. You need to remember what God has called you to. And then finally, look at verses 9 to 14. Nathan confronted David on the two greatest issues. What are the two greatest issues? The first issue is how this offends the Lord. And the second issue is how it impacts others. Notice how direct. It even hit me again as we read it this morning. Notice how direct the words are in verse 9. And in verse, uh, let me find the other one here. Well, we'll find it as we go, huh? In verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? The word despised there is very interesting in the Hebrew language. It means to hold in contempt. 
Why have you held in contempt the word of the Lord? That means, why have you shown disdain for it? Why have you gone? That's what disdain is. How many have done disdain in their life once or twice? Shaking our head. I'm not going to honor that. I don't have any time for that. That's ridiculous. That's what this word contempt, that's what this word despise means. Now that's a pretty big charge for a man who is described as the man after God's own heart. But his selfish sin had done that because sin always does that. Listen now very carefully. Sin shows disdain and dishonor for what the Lord has told us and disrespect in the sense that God says, this is what I want you to do. And we say, I don't want to do it. That's why God hates sin so much. It's the ultimate act of self. It's the ultimate act of contempt for his word. It's saying, I don't want to. I don't need to. Don't tell me what to do. Now we say, oh, come on, come on, Paul, I'd never do that. Every time we sin, we do that. It's like Israel in the wilderness when God would say, do this, and they'd say, we don't want to. Who are you? What do you think? Nathan comes to David, how hard it must have been. And he says, David, man after God's heart, who has a calling, who has been our spiritual example all these years. David, you've shown contempt for the Lord. You've shown contempt for his word. Thankfully, David's heart is such that he knows that he's been wrong. But Nathan says, you didn't commit this sin in a vacuum. We never commit sin in a vacuum. Others will be aware and others will be influenced. Let me tell you what happened as a result of this sin. Uriah died. Bathsheba was forced to sin. Others were corrupted by the execution of David's plan. The baby died. David's other wives were defiled. They faced a new war as punishment. There was awful sin within the family starting in the next chapter that grew out of this. David's son Absalom was irritated by that and seized on his father's moral and parenting failures and tried to commit a coup d'etat. It put the nation in chaos David had to run from Jerusalem and hide in the mountains. And the end result was that Absalom ended up dying. This was not a sin in isolation. There was an impact because of the sin. There's always an impact because of sin. And we're fooling ourselves if we think we're hiding it well enough for people not to notice. It will be exposed eventually, both in an adversely negative way to them and also in our witness. So there are times, I'm done, where we need somebody to come to us and speak truth in love. And there are times where we need to go to somebody and speak truth in love and say, this is wrong. You need to stop. It's interesting. Let me finish with this. Look at one more thought. It's interesting that after David repents, look at verse 15. After David repents and Nathan tells him what the Lord's discipline is going to be, 
There's no further discussion. Nathan speaks the truth in love and goes back to his house. They don't analyze it or talk about how it might affect their friendship or whether what Nathan did was fair. Often in these situations, we kind of keep reopening the wound and dragging it out and and talking about personal resentment. And we go to other people, I can't believe they did that. It was for my good, but it really hurt. And do you think they should have done that? We start to get opinion and take polls among our friends and it just becomes messy. I think it's fascinating that in verse 15, the Holy Spirit gives us six verses. So Nathan went to his house. We need to see that when someone speaks the truth in love to us, or when we speak it to somebody else, the goal is not to create tension and division. It's to restore the relationship to righteousness. So Nathan goes to him. He tells the story. He tells David it's him. He says, the Lord is going to do this. David repents, and it's done. And that's the last time we hear about Nathan in relationship to David other than in verses 24 and 25. David and Bathsheba lose the child. Then they have another baby, not in sin this time because now they're married. And David names him Solomon. And it says in verse 24 that the Lord approved of Solomon, obviously because he has big plans for him. But when David sends word to Nathan, I've had a son and his name is Solomon, the prophet sends back word and he says he has a second name. His second name is Jedidiah. Jedidiah means beloved of Jehovah. Not only was there not a rift between the two of them, but David knew that Nathan had spoken truth in love to him. And Nathan reminds David, even though you sinned, God is gracious. And you have a new son, and his name is Solomon but we're also going to call him Jedidiah because he's beloved of God. That's how it's supposed to work. Imagine if Nathan had ignored the Lord's calling and never gone to David. Instead, he follows God's guideline. He goes to his friend and the relationship is restored. David repents. The nation is unified and God blesses. That's how it works when we follow the leading of the May God help us to do that. May God help us to be pleasing to him in all that we do when we have to do something this difficult. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, this has been a hard word and a challenging word. And there are situations this morning, Lord, where maybe somebody has done this to one of us. Lord, I pray that as that person has come to us or as they're about to come to us, that we would be humble and receptive. Knowing their purpose is not to damage, but to help. And Lord, there are times when we have to go and speak the truth to somebody. Lord, I had to do it just this week. And it was difficult. But Lord, it's the right thing to do. And I pray that as we find your leading to go speak the truth and love to people. Lord, that we would do so humbly And graciously, not with the desire to destroy, but the desire to unify and draw each other back to Christ. Because, Lord, you call us as a body. It is our commission to build up each other in the faith. To do the things that will increase love. 
So Lord, I pray you would help us in that. I pray for the person right now that's in this room that's struggling with this, whether they've been on the receiving end or whether they have to be the one who says it, that they're struggling with it to know what to do. Lord, remind them of your goodness. Remind them of you can restore David. You can restore anybody. We praise you, Father. We praise you for what you have done. We praise you for what you are going to do. Lord, unify us again and again as the body of believers, not just in this room, Lord, but throughout the world. Father, increasingly the truth needs to be spoken. Our culture is getting darker and darker with each passing day. Give us the ability to be bold, to use those seven verses, Father, to lead people toward your grace. You are so good and so faithful to us. And we praise you and honor you with our lives. Lord, we love you. May we serve you now faithfully throughout this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.